The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Have a seat. We've got a lot of ground to cover. This is Thursday, August 30th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors and through that PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. U.S. intelligence is watching Russia now even more than it was in the summer of 2016, but it's seeing less. Not only are intelligence officials not witnessing what they did two summers ago, they say they've rarely seen the Kremlin go this quiet. Specifically, the sources on which the CIA and other agencies normally depend for information from inside the Kremlin have gone quiet. It has U.S. spy agencies wondering just what Putin's planned for the midterms or whether he's really planned much of anything at all. U.S. intelligence does not think its sources have been blackmailed or murdered, just that they've been forced to lay low after seeing other former Russian spies murdered or made the targets of murder even on foreign soil. And now that these Kremlin insiders have seen an FBI informant outed by Republicans in the U.S. House, they have all the reasons they need to clam up. Russia's forcing American diplomats to leave Moscow after we kicked out some of theirs hasn't helped. It's not that the Russians are doing nothing. They've already been caught hacking Republican think tanks and setting up fake Facebook accounts to fan debate over the Molly Tibbetts case. And Russia's reportedly infiltrated Florida's voter registration systems. But is there more? Will there be more? U.S. intelligence has steadily had ways to know these things, or at least to have a clue. These days, it still has Russian informants outside Russia, and they continue to talk, according to reporting by the New York Times. Quoting a veteran CIA official, we will do anything in our power to protect them. And American intelligence can continue to intercept communications between Kremlin officials and continue to poke around in Russia's computers. But otherwise, the Kremlin has clammed up. A bill before Congress that would have given a big boost to U.S. defenses against election interference has been postponed. Both Republicans and Democrats had come to agreement on the bill, but the planned vote has been delayed at the request of the Trump White House. The bill would have given a security clearance to the very top election officials in each state so that when U.S. intelligence detects a threat, those state officials can be briefed on it. As it is now, they can't be. As it is, that's not possible, in spite of credible bipartisan claims that Florida's voter registration computers have already been infiltrated. Also under the bill, voting machines of all types would have to produce paper documents of every vote cast on that machine. That's not going to happen. The White House said no. No word yet on what happens next. After one of the worst weeks a U.S. president has ever had, Donald Trump responded by saying that if he were impeached, the stock market would crash and, quote, everybody would be poor. Trump's lawyer followed up by saying that if Trump were impeached, quote, the American people would revolt. First, note that a sitting president is talking openly about a subject most Democratic congressional candidates are avoiding, impeachment. No sitting president had ever spoken that word publicly. But impeachment is increasingly likely with Trump now an unindicted co-conspirator in two serious federal felonies and the probability of a Democratic takeover of the House in an election that's just nine and a half weeks away. It was in that terrible week that Trump's former fixer lawyer, Michael Cohen, had implicated the president in two serious federal felonies and promised to spill more. Cohen knows a lot, and he's talking. Cohen pleaded guilty to campaign finance violations and tax dodging, and he said it was Trump who told him to pay off the Playboy model and the porn star. It was in that week that Trump's former campaign manager was found guilty by a jury made up of ordinary Americans who believed federal prosecutors over Paul Manafort. Unless he flips or is pardoned, Manafort's facing life in prison for bank and tax fraud and perhaps other crimes as he heads into his second trial September 24th for hiding his income from a pro-Russian political group in Ukraine, for money laundering, and for witness tampering. It was the week in which the man who'd covered up Trump scandals, National Enquirer publisher David Pecker, flipped for prosecutors to save his own skin. Trump's darkest secrets from the past two decades, we learned, had been kept in a safe at the Enquirer. Pecker knows about all of it. And he's talking. A former doorman at Trump Tower revealed his contract with the Enquirer that kept him from talking about the affair he says Trump had with a cleaning lady or the out-of-wedlock child, he says, resulted from that affair. 
all the tabloid chickens were coming home to roost. It was in that week in which the chief financial officer of Trump's company, the CFO of the Trump Organization, agreed to testify against his longtime boss in exchange for total immunity. Alan Weisselberg knows everything about Trump's businesses and personal finances. It was Weisselberg who filled out Trump's hidden tax returns and acted as treasurer for Trump's fake charity, the Trump Foundation. Weisselberg knows it all, and he's talking. Trump's terrible week also included news that the DA's office in Manhattan was considering criminal charges against the Trump Organization and two of its senior officials over the hush money payments that appear to have violated New York state laws about reporting such payments properly. The Trump Organization had recorded the hush payments as a legal expense to cover up what appears to be an illegal campaign donation. And accounting matters. New York prohibits listing things as legal expenses when they are not legal expenses. It's a serious crime. It's a crime that cannot be pardoned by a president because it's a state charge. But the New York State Attorney General's office, in its investigation of Michael Cohen, is handing everything it has over to the state's Department of Taxation and Finance, as well as to the IRS, the Federal Elections Commission, and the federal ethics officials. And it was a week in which Trump unwittingly confessed to violating campaign finance laws by admitting the hush money paid to Stormy and Karen, quote, came from me. And the week in which his lawyer coined the phrase, truth isn't truth. The New York Times today reports that the feds have gathered a lot of evidence that Trump and Cohen had come up with a plan to buy up all the dirt the Inquirer had gathered on Trump since the 1980s. It's all the stuff, said Cohen on one of his recorded conversations with Trump, continuing all the stuff because you never know. It was Trump's worst week ever and one of the worst for a sitting American president ever. Thanks to Michael Cohen's revelations about the hush money, Trump had finally been caught in a provable lie that he'd known nothing about any of this. It was Trump's first documentable lie, meaning the first provably intentional lie in a sea of false and misleading statements. While Democrats were trying to run for Congress and other races on bread and butter issues like health care, Trump was on Fox News talking about his own possible impeachment. Adding, I don't know how you can impeach somebody who's done a great job. The next day, Trump's TV lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, was on Sky News saying there's no reason for Trump to be impeached and that the American people would revolt if he were. Giuliani was not suggesting that people revolt against Trump's impeachment. He was just saying it was something that could happen, something that might happen, something that people may consider. Trump's responses to the Cohen and Manafort guilty verdicts were typical of a mob boss. Trump told Fox in that interview that flipping as Cohen had done and as others were about to do, quote, ought to be illegal. And on Twitter, Trump praised Paul Manafort for refusing to break, Manafort maintaining his own innocence and refusing to cooperate with prosecutors as Cohen had done and as others were about to do. Trump called Manafort a brave man, perhaps sending a message to Manafort that the president has Manafort's back. Manafort appears to have responded to that message by refusing to flip, even though it could spare him from ending his own life in prison. While the jury was deliberating in Manafort's first trial, Manafort's lawyers were meeting with prosecutors in his second trial to try to cut a deal to delay or reduce the charges. Defendants often offer to plead guilty to some reduced charges if it'll help them avoid a long trial, but Manafort did not offer to cooperate with prosecutors as part of the deal, not all plea deals work that way, and this was not one of those. Manafort's lawyers did win a one-week delay that has the trial now starting on September 24th. They're now poring over the 1,500 pieces of evidence that the prosecution's already introduced into evidence for Manafort's second trial. Without any public explanation, the prosecutors turned down Manafort's plea deal offer. It's likely because even now, bizarrely, Paul Manafort is still refusing to talk, still being a brave man, not a rat or a flipper. It is perhaps Manafort's way of sending a message to Trump that he has the president's back too. Paul Manafort is risking dying in jail unless he also flips or gets that pardon. After demonstrating he can and will use his pardon powers as president, Trump had reportedly agreed with his attorney's advice that he not pardon anyone connected to the investigations being conducted by special counsel Robert Mueller. 
Trump reportedly agreed with his lawyer's advice at first that he hold the pardons until after the Mueller probe has ended. That could also be a signal to Manafort that if he hangs tough, even through that second trial, a pardon awaits him. One of the reasons I respect Paul Manafort so much, said Trump, is he went through that trial. But Vanity Fair reports Trump is champing at the bit to pardon Manafort despite what he'd agreed to, despite the advice he had been given strongly and repeatedly. Don't pardon Manafort, they told him, and certainly not until after the next Manafort verdict, and please, not before the midterms. But sources close to Trump tell Vanity Fair the president is moody, alternating between a sense of inevitable defeat and anger. Following the betrayals of Alan Weisselberg and David Pecker, Trump reportedly spent this past weekend, quote, calling people and screaming. Jared and Ivanka are reportedly worried about their patriarch. Jared reportedly telling a friend his father-in-law, quote, got joy out of stripping John Brennan's security clearance. Trump's deputy chief of staff told a friend the president's emotional state is, quote, very tender. Trump aides have noticed he's increasingly making his own decisions, often self-destructive ones, and ignoring and screaming at the people around him who are desperately trying to help him. Quoting a former White House official, this time really feels different. Trump's other reaction to his terribly bad week was to pick a fight with his attorney general, Jeff Sessions. This is risky business for Trump in that his supporters are also big Jeff Sessions supporters because of Sessions' crackdown on immigration. But Trump, in that Fox interview, slammed Sessions, saying he, quote, never took control of the Justice Department. Trump has long wanted Sessions to take over or kill the Mueller investigation and to instead investigate the many alleged crimes of Hillary Clinton. Trump again slammed Sessions for recusing himself from the Russia probe, asking, what kind of man is this? To many, Sessions was, in that instance, the kind of man who has at least some level of integrity. Because of his own involvement in the Trump campaign, it would be improper for Sessions to manage the investigation of it. Despite pressure from Trump, Sessions listened to Justice Department lawyers who'd advised him to recuse. And on that day, in the middle of Trump's terrible, awful week, Sessions was again standing up to his boss. I took control of the Justice Department the day I was sworn in, answered Sessions, adding that his department will not be, quote, improperly influenced by political considerations. In the Fox interview, Trump admitted he had chosen Sessions because he considered Sessions loyal. The only reason I gave him the job, said Trump. Trump wouldn't say whether he plans to fire Jeff Sessions in that interview. But Senator Lindsey Graham, in a complete reversal of his previous statements, said the president perhaps should fire Sessions. But because of Sessions' popularity with Trump's base and because so many Republican candidates are running on Trump's coattails, Graham says firing Sessions should wait until after the upcoming congressional elections. There's increasing evidence Trump doesn't want to wait. There's increasing evidence he's no longer listening to advice he doesn't like. The Washington Post reports that Trump has, in recent weeks, again repeatedly pitched the idea of firing Sessions. When White House counsel Don McGahn advised against firing Sessions before the end of the Mueller probe, Trump reportedly told McGahn he'd find another lawyer. Rudy Giuliani says he and Trump agreed that firing Sessions should wait until after the Russia investigation is over. But all signs point to Trump going his own way, waiting to fire Sessions till after the election, but probably not before the natural end of the Mueller probe. The Republican senators who would confirm Sessions' replacement were at first standing by Sessions. Now, with the handwriting on the wall, they're saying a president needs an attorney general he has confidence in. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein is likely to also get the boot when Sessions goes. Quoting Alabama Senator Dick Shelby, nothing lasts forever. And then yesterday, we learned White House Counsel Don McGahn will be leaving the White House sometime this fall. That means McGahn will be around long enough to finish his current task, getting Kavanaugh confirmed to the Supreme Court. But McGahn had been fired, given his notice on Twitter. McGahn heard about it when we did, just as had others who'd been pushed out of this White House. In other ways, however, McGahn is already gone, and has been ever since the White House learned the extent to which he had been cooperating with the special counsel's Russia investigation. McGahn and Trump have clashed on more than one occasion, and his departure was not unexpected. His departure is not welcomed, however, by many, inside and outside the White House, who saw McGahn as one of the few remaining stabilizing influences on Trump. Investigating obstruction of justice 
Robert Mueller has made note of all of these things. Trump's unsuccessful efforts to press Sessions into action, as well as Trump's unsuccessful efforts to shame Sessions into resigning, as well as Trump's plan to fire Robert Mueller. Trump and his supporters in Congress have already pushed out an FBI director, a deputy FBI director, the head of the FBI's counterintelligence unit, and now they're pushing out the FBI's top guy investigating the Russian mob, Bruce Orr. Trump and his Republicans in Congress see Mr. Orr as being biased because Orr had been in touch with Christopher Steele, who wrote a memo outlining connections he'd found between the Trump campaign and the Russian government and that Russia had collected compromising material on Trump. That Orr had contact with Steele has made Bruce Orr a target and the focus of a day-long grilling this week on Capitol Hill. Orr's wife had worked at Fusion GPS, a company that hired Steele to collect opposition research for the Clinton campaign in 2016, research that was never used. Some Republican lawmakers interrupted their vacations just to conduct this questioning of Bruce Orr. At 5.24 a.m. on Tuesday, Trump was threatening to take action against Google for supposedly rigging its search results to, quote, show only the reporting of the fake news media, end quote, leaving out stories from what he considers conservative, Republican, or fair media. First, Trump's claim isn't true. If you Google Trump news, you'll see items from Fox along with all the others. As for his claim, it's rigged. In fact, it's based on metrics gathered by computer. Very dangerous, tweeted Trump, continuing, Google and others are suppressing voices of conservatives and hiding news that is good. They are controlling what we can and cannot see. This is a very serious situation, wrote Trump, adding, will be addressed, with an exclamation mark, of course. In threatening to interfere with a free press, Trump was likely referring to something he'd heard on Fox News. It was about an article from a conservative news site, PJ Media, headlined, 96% of Google search results for Trump news are from liberal media outlets. Trump heard about this long before sunrise while watching Fox. But the article is about listings in Google News, not about Google search, as the president had tweeted. So he was wrong about that also. But Trump also tweeted that his imaginary problem, quote, will be addressed with an exclamation point for emphasis. Trump economic advisor Larry Kudlow said he'd look into it. As Trump's deputy chief of staff told a friend, the president's emotional state is, quote, very tender. Yesterday, Trump's ongoing attack on the nation's institutions of justice became unhinged. Seemingly out of nowhere, as the Google thing was, Trump was claiming that the Chinese had hacked Hillary Clinton's emails when she was Secretary of State and that the FBI and the Justice Department had better get right on investigating that or, or, or quoting Trump, after all their other missteps, their credibility will be forever gone! Exclamation point. Trump, of course, made this wild, out-of-the-blue accusation without details or evidence. A conservative website founded by Fox's Tucker Carlson had published a story claiming a Chinese-owned company was operating in D.C. and hacked Clinton's private server. This, according to anonymous sources of the type that Trump and his supporters repeatedly ridicule. Trump was again listening to his Fox News cabinet and not the one in his own administration. The FBI has responded to Trump's challenge, saying it has found no evidence that anyone hacked Clinton's emails when she was Secretary of State. Trump, always grabbing at the next distraction, now seemed to be simply making up things. The president is in real legal jeopardy for, among other things, hush money payments to a porn star and a former Playboy model. So evangelical leaders gathered around him in the White House this week and they prayed together. But the prayer wasn't about adultery. It was about politics. After reporters had been ushered out of the room, Trump continued to speak with these evangelical leaders, and somebody recorded audio from that meeting. Trump told the pastors he needed their help in the upcoming midterm elections because if the Democrats win, there would be violence. Not by conservatives unhappy their side had lost, but by Democrats who would be emboldened in what Trump perceives as their war on conservatism. In his pitch to pastors, Trump used fear as a selling point, the violence, and what he portrayed as an assault on religion. Quoting from that surreptitious recording, this November 6th election is very much a referendum on not only me, it's a referendum on your religion. 
It's not a question of like or dislike, says Trump. It's a question that they will overturn everything that we've done, and they'll do it quickly and violently. And violently, he repeated. There is violence, said Trump, adding, when you look at Antifa, these are violent people. Trump was warning of violence from the left, citing a relatively small group of anti-fascists as proof. Trump reminded the evangelical leaders that they and their pastors could reach 200 million people, and he wants their help in the campaign. If you don't, Trump told the pastors, that will be the beginning of ending everything you've gotten. Trump reminded the religious leaders that he had gotten rid of the Johnson Amendment, allowing religious leaders to speak politically and still get their religious tax break. That, by the way, is also not true. A president does not have the authority to repeal the Johnson Amendment. Only Congress does. Trump also reminded the preachers that thanks to him, people can say Merry Christmas again. Out on the campaign trail, Democrats are still speaking in vague terms about the culture of corruption in the Republican Party. Republicans, however, are talking about the threat of impeachment to motivate Trump voters to turn out for the midterms. It isn't working, by the way. Only 20% of Republicans are motivated by impeachment at this point. They are also unmotivated by the Trump-publican tax cuts. Democratic candidates are being advised, and generally taking this advice, to focus on economic issues for working families. Democrats running for re-election to Congress are being advised to call out the corruption, but to avoid a divisive push for impeachment. Despite their reputation for being too timid, Democratic leaders believe the investigation and public opinion will guide the way, fearful that if they push too hard, voters will be turned off. 70% of Democratic voters go into this fall's election motivated by impeachment. 70%. Democrats running in swing states are avoiding the subject, and some are even expressing opposition to impeachment, arguing it would prevent the people's other business from getting done. Some Democrats worry that President Mike Pence might be even worse in his own way. But then Democratic candidates don't really need to be talking about impeachment because everyone else, including the president, is doing that for them. Even people previously skeptical about impeachment were talking about it. A lot. A Washington Post writer, meanwhile, has written a fascinating piece that argues that Democrats don't really need to impeach Trump. The Post's Paul Waldman argues that even Democratic control of the House won't lead to Trump's removal since it's not likely to get past a still Republican-held Senate. The out here, of course, is that so much evidence could be laid out by January that even 15 or 20 Senate Republicans might vote to convict Trump and remove him from office, but right now the odds are far too long. And, writes Waldman, there's a better way to go. He says that with control of the House, Democrats can use their control of the powerful Ways and Means Committee to get and publish Trump's hidden tax returns. They can hold hearings, lots and lots of hearings, including how Trump's personally profiting from his presidency in violation of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. They can investigate the foreign dollars collected by Trump's businesses since he took office. The House Intelligence Committee, under Democratic control, could relaunch that committee's Russia probe, only for real this time. They can investigate the alleged wrongdoings of Trump cabinet officials, including Wilbur Ross at Treasury and Ryan Zinke at Interior. And Democrats, once in control of the House, can demand answers from the White House on immigration policies that rip children from their mothers, on the easing of pollution rules, on adding a citizenship question to the census, and about making it easier for private colleges to cheat their students. They can investigate everything from the Muslim ban to the response to the hurricane in Puerto Rico to the handling of White House security clearances. While the rest of us have been watching The Trump Show, Democrats in the House have made over 100 formal requests for investigations that can finally be pursued should Democrats take control of the House as expected. As Waldman's headline reads, Democrats don't need to impeach President Trump to hold him accountable. What they can do, says Waldman, is turn the White House into an around-the-clock legal defense operation. The bumpy passing of John McCain, the Catholic crisis, and progress for progressives after this. Go ahead and delete your Amazon links. Delete them from your favorites. Delete them from your bookmarks. Delete it on all your devices. And then go to buzzburbank.com. Click on the white Amazon link in the upper right corner of my page, and you'll land right on your very own Amazon page 
all over again. Now, bookmark that. Make that one of your favorites. Make that link your Amazon shopping button. I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make after that, so it helps this free weekly report when you're shopping for home, school, church, or office there. Now, if you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link for any reason, please support this free independent journalism through the PayPal donate button just below the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thank you. Even when John McCain said or did things with which we disagreed, the overwhelming consensus was that his intentions were good and that he was an honorable man. A hero without question, but also just plain honorable. His heroism in the Vietnam War and his time as a tortured prisoner of the enemy are well documented in words and medals. He was at times a hero as a lawmaker and politician, despite decisions with which people on both sides of the aisle alternately disagreed, and despite mistakes he often admitted. McCain's position sometimes evolved and changed over time, almost always for the better, as he did what other Republicans would not. He talked with Democrats. McCain had many Democratic friends, including his mentor, the late Washington Senator Henry Scoop Jackson. At the end, the number of Republican friends had diminished in the Trump era. Through it all, McCain had credibility and confidence because of his life experiences and because of his life of service to his country. He fought for human rights, campaign finance reform, for veterans and against torture, and a repeal of the Affordable Care Act. McCain also had mistakes and failures and scandals of his own, which have also been enumerated elsewhere. Not here, not today. Last Friday, we learned that McCain had discontinued his treatment for an aggressive and inoperable brain cancer, the same kind that had killed Senator Ted Kennedy. The next afternoon, we learned that Senator McCain had died at home in Arizona at age 81. This morning... He was honored in a memorial service at a church in Phoenix after laying in state yesterday at the Arizona State Capitol. After being flown to Washington this evening, his body will lie in state at the U.S. Capitol tomorrow. There'll be another memorial Saturday at the National Cathedral, and McCain will be buried Sunday afternoon at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, next to his Academy classmate Chuck Larson, following a private memorial service that morning. Arizona's governor said he would wait until after the senator is laid to rest before naming a replacement who's interested in running for election to that office in 2020. It's a big decision, with Republicans holding just a 50 to 49 majority in the Senate as the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court confirmation approaches. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey is under pressure from both sides of the Republican Party to choose someone who will support Trump or someone who will stand up to Trump as John McCain had done very clearly more than once. Without McCain, there are now no leading Republican voices to speak against Trump, and none seem to be waiting in the wings. The irreplaceable, reach-across-the-aisle, nation-above-party John McCain had been everything that Donald Trump is not. McCain was one of the most popular politicians of his time, far more popular than Trump, according to the polls. And it was John McCain who had handed to the FBI the Steele dossier, allegedly connecting Trump and Russia and some personally embarrassing details. These are the reasons Trump hated John McCain, and still does in death. Last week, as McCain lay dying, Trump was signing a defense spending bill that had McCain's name on it, and Trump carefully avoided even mentioning McCain on that occasion. Throughout this week, Trump has heard tribute after tribute to an American far greater than himself. Trump is being haunted by the memory of a good man. He may or may not have read McCain's Farewell to America, in which McCain had written, We weaken our greatness when we confuse our patriotism with tribal rivalries that have sown resentment and hatred and violence. But we've always had so much more in common with each other than in disagreement. We will get through these challenging times. We always do, end quote. Nobody seems to want to see Donald Trump at historical events. He was specifically not invited to a royal wedding. And these days, when a beloved Republican dies, a Barbara Bush or a John McCain, there's one person who's carefully kept out of a funeral, the President of the United States. Instead of the head of his party, John McCain asked that former Presidents Barack Obama and George W. Bush deliver eulogies. Vice President Mike Pence will be there, but Donald Trump will not because Trump was specifically asked to stay away. 
McCain's family notified the White House before the senator's death that Mr. McCain did not want the president to attend his funeral. Former Vice President Joe Biden spoke at today's memorial, but Trump had been asked to stay away. Trump felt he had no choice at that point but to fight back against a dead American hero. With the announcement that McCain had discontinued treatment, White House Chief of Staff John Kelly, spokeswoman Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and others drew up an official statement for the president mourning McCain's death once it would occur. Trump rejected it, instead tweeting a photo of himself and sympathies to the McCain family, saying nothing about McCain himself. The White House scrambled to put together statements for other White House officials who didn't hold this post-mortem grudge and who were willing to call a hero a hero. While they and so many others issued heartfelt statements honoring the late senator, Trump was playing golf at one of his resorts. Trump had already moved on, tweeting praise for a former NFL player who supports Trump's re-election in 2020. And then there was the flag thing. When a U.S. senator dies, the law calls for the nation's flags to be lowered to half-staff for one full day and for any remainder of the day of the actual death. A normal president would issue a proclamation for a guy like McCain that would keep the flags lowered for five days or a week or a month. It was down for five days for Ted Kennedy, another lion of the Senate. Trump did not issue a proclamation for McCain, so the White House flag and other federal flags were back to full staff after barely one day in tribute to this fallen war hero. Ignoring tradition, history, and protocol, Trump did only what the law required for McCain and nothing more. Veterans groups in particular did not take this well. The American Legion and AMVET spoke up loudly to name two. After a wave of outrage, the White House relowered its flag to half staff, and Trump issued a statement expressing respect for McCain's service and finally issuing that proclamation. After ignoring reporters' questions about McCain on three occasions, the president finally said begrudgingly the things everyone seemed to want him to say in the first place. Choking on his pride, Trump told an evangelical group Monday night, despite our differences on policy and politics, I respect Senator John McCain's service to our country. Trump's plan for revenge on the dead had been foiled by the transparency of his pettiness. Many people used the word childish to describe his behavior. Well, the campaigns are kicking into high gear. Now that we know the names of most of the candidates who will be on our local election ballots this fall, the last of the big primaries were Tuesday and foretold an election season that paints a clear picture of the state of American politics and its ever-widening divide. Although moderate Democrats have won a majority of primaries against more progressive rivals, the progressives have won big in a way so big it not only cannot be ignored, it's become its own very real force within the Democratic Party. In fact, what's on the line this fall might best be summed up by the governor's race in Florida. On the Republican side, a candidate whose loyalty to Trump was rewarded with a hearty endorsement from Trump easily beat his Republican rival who had criticized Trump's genital-grabbing remarks on that Access Hollywood tape. The message in that race and in Republican races across the country was that Republicans loyal to Trump are rewarded, those who criticize him are punished, and that's working. On the Democratic side, the mayor of Tallahassee, Andrew Gillum, staged a shocking victory over Gwen Graham, a dedicated establishment Democrat, She'd had more statewide experience and spent much more money on her campaign and lost to a candidate who would be more outspoken against Trump. If Andrew Gillum wins in November, he would be the state's first Democratic governor in 20 years. He would also be the state's first African-American governor, just as he is now Florida's first black gubernatorial nominee against all odds. Nobody thought Gillum would get this far, spending tens of millions of dollars less than his fellow Democratic candidates. But a grassroots campaign and heavy turnout from blacks, young voters, and people who'd never voted in a primary before helped Gillum overcome those tremendous odds. The hope is those same people who tend to avoid elections will vote for him again this November. Can Gillum win then in November? At least one poll has him trailing by just 1% in a state that Trump won in 2016 by just 
and liberal billionaires, including California's Tom Steyer, are providing help. Steyer says he's willing to spend over $5 million on the Florida governor's race. Gillum got nearly a million dollars in small grassroots donations in the 24 hours after his primary win. It just won't be as easy for Andrew Gillum as it likely would have been for Gwen Graham, who might have become Florida's first female governor. In the Arizona gubernatorial primary, David Garcia was the most liberal of the Democrats hoping to take on Doug Ducey, and that may make his campaign a tougher slog, although Democrats in Arizona say things are starting to trend more their way. The Republican assault on Florida's Andrew Gillum started early and ugly with Trump taking the lead. The very morning after Gillum's primary victory, Trump was saying, with all the authority of a tweet, that Gillum is a failed socialist mayor, saying Gillum would be easy pickings for Trump-publican Rick DeSantis. The socialist thing is untrue, by the way. Gillum is decidedly liberal, favoring Medicare for all and Trump's impeachment, but He's never declared himself a socialist, nor had he ever been called that before. Trump accused Gillum of allowing, quote, crime and many other problems to flourish in his city. That, not surprisingly, is also untrue. Tallahassee's overall crime rate is down, not up. But Trump's message to his base was that Gillum's policies just don't fit Florida. Gillum fired back, I believe Florida and its rich diversity are looking for a governor to bring us together, not divide us, not misogynist, not racist, not bigots. I'm here, said Gillum, to do the business of the people of Florida. Republicans had planned to simply paint Gillum as too liberal for Florida. Trump trumped them all by playing the socialist card. DeSantis himself fumbled the ball in his attempted swipe at his Democratic opponent, telling Fox News that voters would, quote, monkey this up if they elect Andrew Gillum, who would be the state's first black governor. The head of Florida's Democratic Party called DeSantis' monkey remark a racist dog whistle. Gillum says he thinks of it more as a bullhorn. The sort of progressive Democratic voters who supported Bernie Sanders in 2016 also gained ground this week on the party insiders they had come to despise from within the party itself they made this change. A debate that lasted two years has finally ended. Saturday, in Chicago, party officials voted to strip superdelegates of much of their power in choosing a presidential nominee. Superdelegates were politicians from the old guard made up of lawmakers, governors, and party officials. These select few made up a crucial 15% of the 2016 convention vote, and it was these old guard superdelegates who had supported Hillary Clinton instead of Bernie Sanders. Now, not only do progressives have a seat at the table, they have election victories under their belt, and the mainstream might just follow their lead. Florida's Gwen Graham is a centrist Democrat whose father was a governor and a U.S. senator. She's represented her district in the U.S. House of Representatives. Being a centrist in a Republican-controlled state, Graham was the expected winner of this week's primary, far outspending her primary opponents. In a complete upset, Gwen Graham lost to an outspoken progressive who had gotten a last-minute boost from Bernie Sanders. The next day, Ms. Graham tweeted, I've pledged to do everything I can to help Mayor Gillum defeat DeSantis in November. As it turns out, the Democratic Party's moderates and progressives can get along after all. The Republicans who legislate for North Carolina have until today to redraw the state's election district map. A panel of three judges ordered it so, saying it had to be done in time for the midterm elections on November 6th that could determine who controls the House in Washington. They haven't been given much time, but the judges might argue that North Carolina Republicans put themselves into this fix when they drew the map in a way that favored their party to the point of being unconstitutional. The judges told North Carolina Republican lawmakers that if they don't fix the map in time, the judges might actually shut down voting this fall in the contested districts. North Carolina is expected to ask the Supreme Court to decide this, but right now there are only eight justices on the high court and a tie vote would mean the federal judge's ruling stands and that, yes, North Carolina does have to redraw its maps in a way that's more fair in time for the upcoming election. Two years ago, a federal court struck down the previous North Carolina map, saying it was intentionally drawn to minimize minority voting. 
Meanwhile, down in Georgia, there was a plan to close two-thirds of the polling places in Randolph County, which is predominantly African-American. Nearly everyone saw the proposal for exactly what it was, and they jammed into two overflow town hall meetings to speak loud and clear. Civil rights groups threatened lawsuits, and the national media had gotten wind of it all. So last Friday, the Randolph County, Georgia Board of Elections voted down this proposal and fired the consultant who came up with the poll-closing plan. That entire meeting lasted less than five minutes. Back in Washington, the Trump agenda continues to falter. He's now called off Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's planned trip to North Korea, admitting the obvious that no progress is being made on denuclearization, just as experts had predicted, and in spite of Trump's promise that Americans could sleep better knowing that North Korea was no longer a nuclear threat. It still is. Trump telling aides he didn't think it would take this long. And Trump continues to lose in court. Unions that represent federal workers won a case they'd brought against Trump's executive order that weakened their unions and made it easier to fire them. There are 2.1 million federal employees represented by a dozen unions. Just one of those unions represents three quarters of a million civil servants. The judge in this case struck down the Trump policy and ordered the administration to roll back whatever it set in motion to enact that policy. That's likely to cause chaos in a number of agencies where the new rules had already been put into effect. Another apparently dedicated public servant has thrown up the white flag in surrender to Donald Trump. Seth Frotman, who managed complaints about student loans, resigned this week. He says the Trump administration is protecting predatory lenders at the expense of the students, and he says he won't be part of it. Frotman was the student loan ombudsman at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which is now run by Trump's budget director, Mick Mulvaney. In his resignation letter to Mulvaney, Frotman wrote, You have used the Bureau to serve the wishes of the most powerful financial companies in America. The current leadership of the Bureau has abandoned its duty to fairly and robustly enforce the law. Frotman also says Mulvaney and his lieutenants are undermining the work of the Bureau's career staff and interfering with their efforts to oversee those lending companies. He says Mulvaney's team suppressed the publication of a report about the legally questionable fees that student lenders are now charging. Mulvaney had already made the ombudsman's office less independent by folding it into the Bureau's information division. So Seth Frotman is out. A spokesman for the Bureau has no comment. The Trump Education Department, by the way, lost its top student aid executive last year. He resigned over what he said was political interference with the work of his unit. Salon.com's Bob Seska is taking some much-deserved time off. He and I will regroup after the Labor Day holiday. Nothing honors the American worker more than a couple of days off. We hope you enjoy your weekend as well. Two million people turned out for the last visit to Ireland by the Pope. Barely a half million turned out this time. Pope Francis arrived in that heavily Catholic country over the weekend just after a Pennsylvania grand jury had issued a jaw-dropping report on sexual abuses by priests throughout much of that state. The pontiff arrived in Ireland with the right message, begging forgiveness, but for many, it wasn't enough apology, and it didn't include plans or proposals to make things right. Too little, too late, they said. One called it a hit-and-run visit. Four miles away, there was another crowd in the heart of Dublin carrying signs that read, Hey, Pope Francis, you're out of chances. The Pope is protecting pedophiles, and perhaps the most cutting of all for the Irish. The church, said one sign, is worse than the Brits. One abuse victim says the Pope is the most hypocritical man in the world. There had never been a papal visit to Ireland like this. A t-shirt vendor said business was worse than bad. Lousy, he said. And then things got worse for Pope Francis. A former Vatican ambassador to the U.S. wrote an 11-page letter in which he accuses Popes Benedict and Francis and other top church officials of knowing about the misconduct allegations against former Washington, D.C. Archbishop Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. Knew about it years before McCarrick resigned this summer. And, said this Archbishop ambassador, Pope Francis must now resign. It was a Sunday morning bombshell for Catholics headed to or from Mass. The Vatican had no comment. 
Leaving Ireland on his plane back to the Vatican, the Pope was asked by reporters about this. Francis refused to confirm or deny the allegations, but instructed reporters to read the full 11 pages carefully before he would comment on it that he thinks the letter speaks for itself. It is a rare public schism among the church's hierarchy, and some say it's a political power play. This ambassador, Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, is a conservative, critical of Pope Francis's liberal policies. The Pope had recalled Vigano from his job in D.C. after learning Vigano was part of a campaign from U.S. conservative Catholics to fight same-sex marriage. In his sermon in a park in Ireland, Pope Francis told the crowd, We ask forgiveness for some members of the church's hierarchy who did not take charge of these painful situations and kept quiet. It's apparently a case of what the popes did and when they did it. It gets down to whatever sanctions, if any, Pope Benedict had imposed on Cardinal McCarrick and what, if anything, Pope Francis did to change those sanctions. Archbishop Vigano says he told Francis about Benedict's sanctions on McCarrick on June 23, 2013, and that Francis did nothing about them. He says he told Francis of, quote, a dossier this thick about him. And he says he told Francis that Benedict had ordered McCarrick to withdraw to a life of prayer and penance. That claim has been corroborated by another former Vatican official. But McCarrick continued to live without Benedict's restrictions under Pope Francis and continued to celebrate Mass. Back in Pennsylvania, authorities have reopened the investigation into a case from decades ago in which a former high school student accused the headmaster priest of sexual abuse. He says the Monsignor raped him several times, that it started with, quote, some alcohol and dirty movies. Monsignor H. Desmond McGee was not among the 300 priests named in the recent grand jury report. Political or not, Francis is now an embattled pope. And more and more of his church's followers are asking themselves why they still are. In Scotland, a dozen people have been arrested on charges of abusing children at a Catholic orphanage that has since been shut down. Eleven women and one man, all between the ages of 62 and 85, have been arrested on charges of physical and sexual abuse of children over many decades. The bodies of 400 children were discovered in a grave just a few miles away. Some of the children were younger than five when they died. 11,000 children had been placed in that orphanage over the past 117 years before it was closed in 1981. The victims are still coming forward, those who can. Of the 11 women arrested, many are nuns. A full report comes out next year. It has taken nearly a year to get an accurate count of the number of people who died last year in Puerto Rico from the ravages of Hurricane Maria. Trump praised the governor at first for a low count of 16 when he visited in the early days after the storm had passed. Nothing, said Trump, like Hurricane Katrina. He was right about that, but not in the way that he meant it. More than twice as many people had died on this American territory as in the mainland states struck by Katrina. Puerto Rico had a 9-11-sized death toll from that storm, losing nearly 3,000 people. But it got far less federal help than did Katrina victims. The official death count would later stand at 64 and stay there for months and months, nearly a year. There were a lot of people who hadn't been counted. The official death toll now stands at 2,975. Communications were down all over the island and deaths were not being reported. More people would die in hospitals that lost the electrical power to run life-saving equipment. And Puerto Rican doctors were only counting deaths from, quote, structural collapse, flying debris, floods, and drownings. After the storm, CDC guidelines were changed to also include those who'd been delayed from getting health care because of the storm damage or flooding. It took researchers from George Washington University to collect and analyze all the relevant data to land on what is now the official number of nearly 3,000 people, putting the Trump administration's response to that disaster under even greater scrutiny. A white former Texas police officer is facing an unusual fate for killing an unarmed black teenager. It is unusual for an officer to be convicted of murder, but that was the case this week for former Balt Springs officer Roy Oliver, who's been paying a $10,000 a day fine 
and has now been sentenced to 15 years in prison. It was a lighter sentence than hoped for by the boy's grieving family and by prosecutors who wanted at least 60 years. But it is a far harsher punishment than we would normally see, even in those rare cases when an officer does get convicted. The officer had fired into a car full of teenagers after responding to a report of underage drinking. Plastic guns from 3D printers. A federal judge this week blocked the Trump administration from allowing blueprints for these so-called 3D guns to be released to the public. But the man whose company had sold those blueprints to hundreds of people already now says he will keep offering them online for whatever price a buyer can afford. 19 states and the District of Columbia went to the U.S. District Court to get this ruling, but the genie was already out of the bottle. The lawsuit argued correctly that these plastic guns would be extremely difficult to trace and can slip past metal detectors. California lawmakers, meanwhile, have just passed three new gun control bills, including two that allow some people to be banned from owning a gun for life. One of the lifetime bans is in a mental health bill. A domestic violence conviction would also be grounds for a lifetime ban. The third bill is for all new gun owners requiring hours of instruction before getting their permits. Now, if you get arrested in California, there is no amount of money that can get you out of jail. That's because the state has just ended the practice of collecting money to let someone out of jail while they wait for their day in court. Instead of bail, people arrested on felony charges will undergo a risk assessment. If the suspect is not accused of a crime of sex or violence, they will be released with an ankle monitor. California hopes this means that from now on, the rich and the poor will be treated the same in the criminal justice system. Stop wrinkling your forehead. WTF, Procter & Gamble, and a horny dolphin warning in the third and final segment up next. Isn't it time to stop spending restless nights flipping and reshaping your pillow to get cool and dry? Wake up as cool as the other side of the pillow. Sleep on a hollow pillow. The hollow pillow stays cool while giving your head, neck, and shoulders perfect support all night long, night after night. A lot of us have spent good money on good mattresses but still hadn't found the right pillow. Fiber fills are hot and humid. They collapse under your weight. They don't give you a full night's support you need for good posture and good sleep, but you have to keep replacing them. A memory foam pillow gives support, but maybe not quite the right shape for you. It doesn't breathe, so it gets hot and gives off chemical gases. You probably shouldn't spend a third of your life inhaling. Hollow pillows are filled with natural buckwheat hulls that don't give off gases and don't collapse. The buckwheat's grown and milled by American farmers before the hulls go into Hollow's pre-shrunken, certified, organic, unbleached cotton twill casing, all right here in the U.S. Hollow pillows breathe and stay cool, and most importantly, conform perfectly to your head, neck, and shoulders for a truly restful night's sleep. And you can adjust the fullness of the hollow pillow by removing or adding more hulls through the zipper that's covered for comfort. I am so happy with mine after well over a year of night-after-night -night use. I'm proud to give it my personal endorsement and also proud that a percentage of the profits are donated to the Nature Conservancy. Hollow pillows are available in three sizes, small, standard, and king. And right now, depending on the size, you can save up to 20 bucks on each additional pillow with fast, free shipping. But you can only get that deal by going to hollowpillow.com slash buzz. That's hollowpillow.com slash B-U-Z-Z. Thank you for supporting this brilliant company and this show at hollowpillow.com slash buzz. The recall of the week involves ground beef contaminated with E. coli bacteria. E. coli illness can cause bloody diarrhea and vomiting. Cargill has recalled more than 25,000 pounds of 93.7 fine ground beef packaged in 10-pound chubs with a use or freeze date of September 5th. Those chubs were shipped to warehouses in Colorado and California, and they should be thrown away or returned for a refund. Although there is plenty in the news, and perhaps your own life, to give you a furrowed brow, resist the urge to scrunch up your forehead just above your nose, especially when you hear this story. A new study out of France says a brow furrowed more than it should be for your age might mean a higher risk for dying of heart disease. 
The study found that those with the deepest wrinkles between their eyebrows had nearly 10 times the death risk as others at that age who had no furrows. The study did not show cause and effect, only this correlation. Other experts are skeptical, and even one of the researchers admitted, I'm not so sure I would put too much on this until we have more evidence. But she does think it warrants more exploration. She said being able to spot trouble in advance on someone's face could be very helpful in preventing those heart deaths. One might suppose that the stresses of life that caused those deeply carved brows would be a sign of what that stress has done to the heart and other organs. In the meantime, don't worry too much, and don't wrinkle your forehead. And don't try to drown your worries in drink. A study convincing, because of its sheer size, concludes the best amount of alcohol to consume is none. This is the result of work by more than 500 researchers at nearly 250 institutions just published in a respected medical journal, The Lancet. The study involved more than a thousand other studies of the health effects of alcohol pro and con. It involved death and disability records from nearly 200 countries over more than 25 years. And after all that math, the result was zero. Zero, they said, is the ideal amount of alcohol to consume. What's best for you, says a professor of global health at the University of Washington, is to not drink at all. And we may be acting out our angst in other ways. The latest report from the CDC shows that STD rates in this country have increased for the fourth consecutive year. There were 2.3 million cases of sexually transmitted diseases in the U.S. in 2017 that were diagnosed. That's an all-time record high, breaking the old record set just two years ago, beating it by nearly a quarter million cases. It's part of a five-year trend, and it's even stalled progress on HIV. Gonorrhea is up by two-thirds. The combined forms of syphilis are up by 75%. Most of the increase stems from an increase in risky sex, but some is because of better health screening. That's one reason for 1.7 million new chlamydia cases in 2017. Better screening is finding more. The good news is that young women are in growing numbers getting their HPV shots. Still, government health experts are concerned and asking the president to declare STDs a public health crisis. In the end, as the song says, you only have 100 years to live. Living to 100 is still rare, but it's becoming more common, especially in Japan, where there are 68,000 centenarians. Well over a fourth of Japan's population is over 65, no longer generating the tax money it'll take to pay for their elder care. The number of over 65s is more than double what it was in 1990. At a slower rate, the same thing's happening in other countries around the world. It's forcing Japanese policymakers to figure out what to do with these longer lives. They've already raised the mandatory retirement age for public servants, but what else? Does it mean more work and taxes before retirement or just a longer retirement? There's talk of sending the seniors back to school or retraining them for a new vocation. These are questions that must be answered, even if it isn't clear yet just what the answers are. Passings and passages. As most of the nation mourned the loss of John McCain, so did most for Aretha Franklin. Like McCain, thousands and thousands of people came to pay their respects to the late Queen of Soul. And we lost a comic genius in playwright Neil Simon, who died at age 91. Best known for writing The Odd Couple, he was the master of the middle-class comedy and the king of Broadway back when that meant more than it does today. Simon started out writing jokes for Jerry Lewis, Phil Silvers, Jackie Gleason, and Sid Caesar. We also lost Florida's Ed King, the guitarist for Leonard Skinnerd, who co-wrote Sweet Home Alabama. That's him counting one, two, three, just before his familiar guitar lick. And it's champagne wishes and caviar dreams for Robin Leach, who also left us this past week at the age of 76. Leach rubbed elbows with celebrities, first at Rupert Murdoch's tabloid The Star, then for Entertainment Tonight, before getting his own show, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Crazy Rich Asians was again the top movie this week in the U.S. and Canada. CRA raked in another $25 million, bringing its total to about $77 million. Warner Brothers is already working on a sequel. The Meg held on to second place. For all the movies, previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please click through my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com.
In other movie news, Alec Baldwin will play Batman's dad in DC's upcoming Joker origin film starring Joaquin Phoenix. Baldwin will reportedly portray Thomas Wayne as a Donald Trump type. On the small screen, it appears the character of Roseanne Connor, played by Roseanne Barr, will be dead in the first episode of the spin-off series The Connors. No certainty yet about how the character passed, but she did reveal an opioid addiction in the penultimate episode last season. The Connors premieres later this fall. And while decisions are being made about whether to replace the vandalized star of Donald Trump on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Grammy winner Weird Al Yankovic has just gotten his star on that walk. At the dedication, Yankovic said, I'm sorry to even have to say this, but please don't pickaxe my star, okay, guys? Not, said Yankovic, unless he does something, quote, unfathomably monstrous and evil. Lead singer Steven Tyler is demanding that Trump stop playing Aerosmith songs at his rallies. Trump played Living on the Edge at a recent rally in Charleston, West Virginia. He'd played Dream On at campaign rallies at the start of his campaign in 2015 until Tyler back then asked him to stop. Tyler tweeted, this is not about Dems versus Repubs. I do not let anyone use my songs without permission. My music is for causes, not for political campaigns or rallies. Trump says he will stop using Tyler's music, even though Trump claims, quote, I have the legal right to use it. In Lake County, Florida, smack dab in the middle of the state, police are looking for the man caught in photos using a chainsaw to cut down a political sign. Who knew the stakes could be so high in a race for the title clerk of courts? If you're in the telecommunications business, you cannot use the word face in your marketing because Facebook owns that word in that domain. You'd need the express written consent of Facebook and or you would have to pay them money. Facebook trademarked the word face when used in a telecommunications context. When someone says that's hot, they may owe money to Paris Hilton because that is her trademarked phrase. She sued Hallmark cards over this and won. A celebrity stylist has, for the hell of it apparently, trademarked the word bananas. Companies don't always get the trademarks they want. They've, there have been plenty of failures and failed attempts, but many, as you've just heard, do succeed. And now, Procter & Gamble, the cleaning products company, has applied for trademarks to the acronyms LOL for laughing out loud and NBD, short for no big deal. Resist the temptation to say WTF because the soap company has applied for that trademark too. And don't say FML because, yes, P&G wants that trademark as well. A video crew from the ad agency for Kraft Foods was in Mayo, Florida this past week getting people's reactions to the news that the name of their town had been changed. It was no longer Mayo. It was now to be called Miracle Whip, Florida. That's fake news, of course. It was a gag for a TV commercial. Still, one citizen seemed pleased, saying, we aren't going to be boring mayo anymore. And cut. They're advising people not to go swimming in the waters just off the coast of a town in northwestern France. A local dolphin who normally enjoys swimming and cavorting with tourists has gotten a little too friendly. He's in heat, says an expert in marine mammals. Zafar, as he's called, has been rubbing up against swimmers to a degree a number of people describe as frightening. There's a concern about broken limbs and drownings. Zafar was so taken by one woman, he blocked her attempts to return to shore and she had to be rescued by boat. For whatever reason, perhaps because of his extended contact with humans, Zafar is a social outcast from the other dolphins. Quoting our expert, he's wanting, needing, yearning social contact. But quoting again, it's several hundred kilos of a fairly rambunctious animal trying to fulfill a need. So, no swimming off the coast of northwestern France until the heat dies down. A second grade teacher at Hector Elementary in Arkansas was picking up a curtain out of a corner on the floor when she found the snake. She ushered most of her students quickly into the classroom next door, sending a couple to the office to report that help was needed. The principal just happens to be a former state parks employee who identified the snake as non-venomous and picked up the snake. 
After it was captured, the snake was released into the wild, but not until after it had bitten the principal on the thumb. Snakes know. In America's best highway spills, South Dakota, a truck carrying paper products collided with a truck carrying roast beef. The paper truck won. There were pot roasts all over the highway along US-12, just west of the town of Summit. Nobody got hurt, but 31,000 pounds of roast beast had spilled to the ground, making it a kind of ground beef. I'm not through. In West Virginia, a truck carrying 40,000 pounds of candy lost part of its load on I-470. Make up your own joke here. The candy strewn about the highway was from a little company called Hershey. And finally, from the police blotter, in Santa Fe, New Mexico, two men have been arrested on charges of stealing trash cans. Tens of thousands of dollars worth of them. Maybe you've heard, one man's trash can is another man's treasure. And in Thermal, California, a man was arrested after police found 800 pounds of lemons in his car. He had been charged with theft of agricultural products, the lemons missing from a local farm. The man doesn't appear to have a lawyer, so police will now try to squeeze what they can out of him. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.